0: Welcome to After Hours at the Radio Book Club, which is a podcast edition of the Radio Book Club, a collaboration between KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran. My co-host, as always, Arsene Kashkashian, joining us as we are live at the Boulder Bookstore with our guest today, who is Ted Conover, talking about his latest book, Cheap Land Colorado, Off-Gridders at America's Edge. We're going to take questions now from the audience. I'm going to jump in. This is a multi-part question. What was the most... Surprising discovery of your experience, the most joyous and the saddest and scariest. Oh my
1: goodness. Gonna take me around the globe of my emotions. Um, So I found a rattlesnake uh, underneath my shed uh, last year and that was deeply frightening. Um, And I did not want to kill the rattlesnake, much to the Disdain of my neighbors who uh, asked where I had what I had done with how I had killed it, and I had to admit I had not. Um, Anyway, that's the most scared I was. Um, And then also, I found uh, a a derringer under the mattress of the mobile home that came in the property I bought, and that was somehow scary. Um, And I gave it back to the family who had sold me the place. But I've since wondered if I should have done that. What was the other so question?
0: Scary. Scariest? No, no, that was scariest. Saddest. Oh, oh, there's so much that's sad.
1: Oh, I don't even know what the saddest is.
0: Okay, with are joyous. <laughs> so let's just lift that switch right now. Thank
1: you. There's a lot of sad. Um, for some reason, and this is the memoir part of the book more than the sociology part, but I just get, um, really happy driving down there sometimes, especially at the end of the day. I can't explain it. It's just so beautiful. And, um, that happens at least once a week. So, um, it's an amazing place. Just the, uh, The sky is so huge and there's weather happening there. That's the opposite of what's happening here And you get the sense if you don't like it. Well, they say this everywhere just wait an hour But there you can see That you're not stuck in your situation. You could go over there and and I just think there's an something in the air of alternative possibilities and there's a very low bar of entry because things are so cheap and if you want to try growing hemp you could probably do that. And if you want to try permaculture, there's probably a way. And um, so it's, you know, there, it's it's really an interesting place. And, and surprising. And surprising.
0: surprising, yeah. So would that fall into most surprising? Yes, thank yes, you, okay. thank you. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so um, this question is, I imagine you consider many ideas for immersive experiences about which to write. What is the most wild idea you've thought about but ultimately rejected? And maybe also you can tell the audience a little bit about some of the other books that you've done that were also immersive, so people get an idea of where this kind of fits in with the other things you've done. Sure. Uh, So my
1: first book-length project uh, grew out of my undergraduate uh, uh, anthropology research at uh, at Amherst College, where I... uh, I left college because this was going to be against the law, according to my professors. They were right, uh, and I I rode freight trains to learn uh, from people who do that um, as their normal life. And uh, so that was the first. While I did that, I met a, a number of Mexicans in California who uh, I was so surprised would talk to me, and uh, thought, "Wow, that would be a really interesting book." And that was my second. Book. It's called Coyotes. It's about a year of travel with migrants. Um, Then I I was introduced at a party in New York as a writer who makes his living sleeping on the ground. And I thought, that's a terrible, that's a terrible thing to have to keep doing. And I uh, went to Aspen. (laughs) (laughs) And I stayed in a house of somebody who's in the second row here tonight. And it was really, um, a completely different experience, and, um, but I, I got a job at the Aspen Times, and I drove a taxi for the Mellow Yellow Cab Company, and, uh, uh, tried to see if this, uh, this field technique, that, you know, called participant observation, would work in a place like Aspen. And, and I'm not sure, I guess it did. But it's a very different book from my others. Um, uh i'm very fond of it and i still go back to aspen i now have uh i'm related by marriage to people in aspen and um but it is uh, peculiar to have written about both maybe the wealthiest county in colorado and one of the poorest it's very strange to have a foot in both those worlds Mm -hmm. um i'm best known for my book new jack guarding sing sing where where i became a A corrections officer in the state of New York without telling them and um, uh, yeah so I'm I do always look for new projects which might work well for this back when I was living in Colorado I applied to become the journalist in space glad I didn't get that they had a whole, well, you remember, it, it It was tragic. It ended tragically with the teacher in space program, but they had a journalist in space uh, competition going on when that happened and I was still in it. Um, I'm grateful, yeah, that just did not happen. Um, oh gosh, for a while I thought it might be fascinating to work in, um, in child protection uh, in a big city. Like New York, that would be a heartbreaking immersion, um, uh, and I'm glad that hasn't happened. Um, but uh, no, there's, you know, uh, there's the the problem is uh, I in, I'm less and less interested in not being completely forthcoming with people about what I do, and. Um so that does narrow the
2: possibilities somewhat. So you, you couldn't have written New Jack being completely forthcoming. No, that would have been impossible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this immersive what did you call it, participation and
1: participant observation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: What does that go back to? I mean I know Nickel and Dimed is a famous book mm-hmm. that was based on that. But how far does that can you trace uh, that back? Is is there a real forerunner for this? Well, you know, Nellie Bly
1: back in um New York, uh, around the turn of the century, pretended to be a person with mental illness and got herself committed to um, the Blackwell's Island Asylum in New York City. Uh, uh, What's now Roosevelt Island had an asylum, and she did a big expose. Her immersion lasted, I think, only 10 days, but it was intense, and she writes about yeah being put in a cold bath after 20 other women had already been placed in this cold bath to um you know adjust them somehow and anyway george plimpton's well known for his participations in sports teams um but but that's just journalism this the you know the approach comes out of uh, like anthropology of sort of post colonial academics Going to faraway countries that had been colonized by the major European powers and wanting to Understand what was there what people and what animals and in the beginning they were sort of categorized in the same basket I mean it, there was no racial Enlightenment back then there was uh, Yeah, uh, there was a real desire to establish uh, um hierarchies of human uh evolution right and somehow the white people ended up on top and um so there's you know the the background of of doing research elsewhere is not all admirable but i think it has morphed over the years into a sort of uh diverse Um, pursuit of, you know, everything from uh, drag bars, to animal shelters, to uh, uh, opiate addiction centers. There are ethnographies of all these worlds of, of people who feed pigeons. I work with a guy at NYU who did an ethnography of people who feed pigeons in parks. So it's an interesting world we're in and it's kind of fun to think of it in terms of constituent groups.
0: I have another immersive uh, question. Looking back over your many immersive experiences, are there any which prepared you for your next or future immersion? Or conversely, any which led you to not be prepared?
1: Wow. <clears throat> um, I think each has helped me uh, be better prepared for the next. Though so, Sing Sing, I feel, set me back a little bit. I'm not sure that was a growing experience in terms of my psyche or my skills. That was a really hard one. Yeah. But um, mostly,
2: I think the more you do things, the better you get. Yeah. This is about this book. What do your neighbors do all day? <laughs> what is their everyday life like? How do they survive? So
1: there's just an endless number of answers to that. Um, Some actually do have jobs in town. The the oldest two Gruber girls now work at a a ranch. A few miles away, they are ranch hands. Um, The the dad tends to try to fix his broken down cars a lot and fix up their house, um, which needs constant attention. He also grows marijuana. He's gotten very good at that and has these massive, like bigger than these palm plant, much bigger, like three times the size of these palm plants, which continue to impress me. Um, uh, um, The mom takes care of her five daughters. Uh, That's more than a full-time job, and she has all kinds of medical issues that make that difficult. Oh gosh, I have a neighbor who uh, who only has one leg, but who can still drive a, um, a tractor, and he works uh, on farms that, in the hay season. Um, you know, cuts alfalfa, and um, what do my neighbors do all day? One worked, got a job with a census and drove her car around. Uh, um, we compared notes about that, driving up to strangers' places. Um, I think there's people who just drink beer all day. There's people who smoke weed all day. There's people who, uh, I do not know what they do all day.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, somebody asks if you could describe your property and also what elevation is it at? Yeah.
1: So I will share with you tonight that the picture on the front of this book is my property. Um, It was taken by a, a drone, by a guy who is, is trying to work with new immersive digital photography techniques. And I met him through a friend. And he asked if he could stop by. Uh, and he took a, an interesting drone photo. And uh, it's five acres. It's, it came with um, a big mobile home and a Dutch barn shaped shed that has the uh, solar uh, energy equipment in it. And then there's a shed behind the big mobile home, which is where the snakes go. And um, and then that's my camper trailer that I, it, it was from the '70s. That trailer, it's very old, but um, but clean. And now that the mobile home has been excavated, it's uh, it was super super disgusting inside and a home for thousands of mice, like more mice than you can imagine. And um, they're gone. And uh, my neighbor who helped with that. Build me for I think ten gallons of bleach. He opened up all the walls, and he uh, he was so afraid of getting hantavirus that he he wore like some fancy breathing apparatus. And uh, anyway, it's my my wife has now spent a night in that mobile home.
0: And <laughs> <laughs> um, what elevation is it at?
1: That is like seventy seven hundred feet, I think. Yeah,
2: I've got a question that Maeve often likes to ask and that is, or uh, variation at least to this question, but in this case it's, what do your neighbors think of your book? I don't know yet. I've, I've sent them early copies,
1: at least a dozen. Um, I'll be in Alamosa tomorrow night, uh, and a bunch of my neighbors, I think, will come to the, the reading.
2: You'll be at that little bookstore down there. Mm,
1: well, that little bookstore, the narrow gauge bookstore, is Caddy Corner from a place called Milagros oh, yeah. Coffee yeah. House, which is a social—what's uh, it called? Social enterprise of La Puente, and so the bookstore is supplying the books, and it's—I'm buying them as a benefit for La Puente. Yeah.
2: Great.
0: Well, someone asks, why did people freeze to death? You mentioned a couple of your neighbors. Um, is it that there's not enough money for electricity? And, and I think this would be a great way to describe how people actually live yeah. off the grid, and not necessarily with solar panels, just literally off the grid.
1: So somehow, the cold catches some people unawares. And um, maybe it's because they're not entirely sober. I'm not exactly sure. but. Matt Little, the the man I, who taught me basically this outreach work, he, there were people he would check on because he just knew they were at risk. There was a guy who lived in a van and um, Matt just every week he'd come by, do you need more blankets? Would you, can I bring you some firewood? Um, and the guy's like, no, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. But he wasn't. He's, and he's not he's not alive anymore, and Matt feels uh, guilty about that. Like, he feels he he should have stopped in more often, and neither of us understands why that happened. We do not know why he stayed in the van, but he did. I have another neighbor who is was an alcoholic, like a, a real sort of caricature of an alcoholic. He would arrive at parties with a wine bottle and, you know, guzzle it down, and, um. He was found frozen by his best friend, Um, and uh, nobody really knows why. Apparently, according to his family, he had a heart attack. Maybe he did, he was only about 35. It's not an old person. You you don't know always. Um, You know, there are people who run out of firewood and will burn their fence or their barn, Um, and you know, I think anybody out there, if they knew their neighbor were that cold, would invite them in, because everybody knows you're, you're at risk of that. Is that South Park, excuse me, um, the San Luis Valley gets really cold, uh, in, in January especially. Um, but yeah, there's, there are programs, you know, when everybody pays the public service company, their utility bills, a little bit goes into a fund that we were able to distribute to people who applied for propane we could sign them up we could get them a cord of firewood there's great programs but not everybody applies and why is a riddle but i think it has to do with what's in the bad things in people's heads yeah
2: i mean based on your experience it's, it's also seems like the cold like you said it it gets bitterly cold like why don't you Briefly tell, like, the story of your first night. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, somebody who had less blankets or sleeping bags than you did could have freeze to death on your first night there.
1: Yeah, so the first night I spent with the Grubers, I, the night before, I had slept in the driveway in Alamosa of the woman who sold me the, the trailer. And it only had one uh, car battery, but the car battery and a tank of propane kept it warm all night. And... um And I thought, great, I'm set. And I went out and uh, it was much, much colder where I was, but I didn't know that. And the, um, the, uh, the furnace stopped working probably sometime around midnight, I don't know. I had a big sleeping bag from my Himalayan expedition days in my book about roads, and I climbed into it and I put a water bottle into it, which was smart because all my water was frozen in the morning and uh, the thermostat said minus seven and um, the door wouldn't open. It was um, the frost from, I guess, my breath had frozen the metal door of my trailer shut and I thought, oh, uh, what do I do? I could kick it. But then I'd probably break my door, and I thought I'll try to maintain a a calm and an air of normalcy. And I um so I said I will brush my teeth. That's what I would do on a normal. I'll brush my teeth, and I I put toothpaste on my toothbrush and I put it in my mouth, and it was frozen. The um the bristles were like wire, and um and I just felt completely out of my depth, and uh, like I had made. Uh, You know, I thought I was reasonably prepared and I wasn't at all and the uh, The Sun the Sun hit I had I had angled the trailer to face south so the Sun melted the ice on the door By I don't know seven or eight in the morning and I warmed up in my truck and then the Gruber's explained to me how to connect a generator to my battery to keep it going if I didn't until I got more batteries. There's a lot to learn. And and um, actually needing to learn those things helped me meet people because it, it shows I do not consider myself superior because obviously I am barely capable of doing basic things like staying warm at night. And um, so people would explain to me how to how to do things. And that, uh, uh, yeah, that's kind of how I got started.
0: It's not just the cold, the wind as well. And you describe being in the trailer one night and you were like, is this going to tip over? Because that. It happens. happens. So you changed which way you were sleeping because if it did tip over, at least you'd land on your. Thank face. you.
1: That's exactly. I didn't want to land on my head when the trailer tipped. I, right?
0: Would, right? That's smart. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
2: I have a question about the role of social media in driving people to the valley mm. and what role to play once they're there.
1: Well, there is a glamorization of off-grid living, I think, especially through reality TV shows about Alaska and prospectors and just tough backwoods folks who um, who live off-grid. And then there's, then there's a whole... Sort of stylish way of living off grid right in a tiny house or a um you know in a in a schoolie isn't that what you call it when you uh renovate an old school bus um, like there's a, some cool things going on um, with people who want or van life that whole thing is a cousin to oh and or um you know, what this all started with, uh, down in Tres Piedras, New Mexico, the um, green, the earthships, thank you. Earthships are, you know, a model for how you can conserve energy and and live off grid. And uh, I learned once I was down there that they aren't a real good model for the people I was with because they're very expensive. Um, And then Castilla County outlawed the use of used automotive tires because, um, you know, earthships made those popular as building materials, but now huge stacks of them that were never turned into anything beautiful litter, Castilla County. And along with a lot of other industrial detritus, including, you know, just the ruins of old RVs that the county has no money to take away. And uh, so yeah if you're living down there you sympathize with people who have no means but then you think should this even have been private property right because you see how beautiful it looks on the other side of the rio grande in where there's blm land so anyway lots of things to think about down
0: there i've got a last question did anything that you learned in high school lead you to become an author
1: so i was um I was um, bused by court order from the George Washington High School District in Denver to the Manuel High School District, and that um, I think did play a big role in me becoming a writer. Well, first I worked for, I helped edit my high school paper, and then I, it, through writing I tried to understand the things going on culturally in that <clears throat> in that place, in that integrated high school. And um, it was a good experience overall. I don't think it was at every school that got integrated that way, but for me it was, and it made me think, uh, you know, if, if a journalist had more time to spend on some of these things, they might do a better job, so.
0: Well, thank you so much, Ted Conover. It's been just terrific to have you here at Hours at the Radio Book Club, a podcast collaboration between KG and and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran, as always, Arson Kashkashi, and my co-host. Thanks, Arson.
2: Thank you, Maeve.